As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking together at the book of Nahum tonight, the book of Nahum, and so I'll invite you to open up there. There's only three chapters in the book of Nahum, and we'll kind of be surfing through it together a little bit. We're going to read specifically at the outset from Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. These are a couple verses that, I guess, encapsulate really the big idea of the book of Nahum. Hear the word of the Lord, Nahum 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. But with an overwhelming flood, He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue His foes into darkness. As far as the reading of God's own word, let's pray together and ask Him to bless our time studying it. Lord God, we are grateful for Your word. We are grateful for the freedom and opportunity we have to study it together tonight. Father, we know that we need Your Holy Spirit to open our ears uh, to Your word, to enable us to hear it. And so that is our prayer now, that You would open our ears, allow these truths to go deep inside of us, uh, and to transform us evermore into the image of our Savior. It's in His name we pray, amen. Question and answer 52 of the Catechism asks, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And it answers, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God, and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. Now those truths articulated in the catechism there, they're Truths derived from the New Testament, if you look at the the supporting texts there in question and answer 52, they're all New Testament texts, but those New Testament truths uh, set forth in the catechism, they are truths like all truths in the New Testament that were prefigured clearly in the Old Testament. And one place these truths about God's return to judge the living and the dead and to bring salvation to His people are seen in the Old Testament is in the book of Nahum. We see in Nahum 1, chapter 1, that this book is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The word oracle uh, refers usually to a prophecy of, of judgment, all right? And the word vision refers to the means that God used to communicate this prophecy of judgment to Nahum. It was in a, in a vision of some sort. So, so this book is a, is, arises out of a vision that Nahum received, and it's, it's, it's an oracle. It's a word of judgment against Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, is well-known 
as the place Jonah went, or, well, he did end up going there. It took a little prodding and a fish, but it's the place that Jonah went uh, roughly some 100 years earlier, and in the days of Jonah, there was a season of repentance in Nineveh, you might remember. But it's clear from the book of Nahum that since then, Nineveh has very much returned to their old godless ways. Nineveh was the capital of of Assyria, and Assyria was one of the most feared empires ever to have existed on the planet. In the 1930s and 40s, they talked about the Nazi war machine that ravaged Europe. Well, Assyria was likewise a war machine that ravaged the Middle East from about the mid-8th to the mid uh, 7th century B.C. We see some of this in Nahum 3, 1 through 4. Uh, this is a description of Nineveh and ultimately of Assyria, but just look at what, uh, what the prophet says. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries. Okay, that's, that's, that's a description of Nineveh and ultimately of, of Assyria. They were a wicked nation known for their lust for power, their willingness to shed blood, their insatiable appetite for the riches of this world, among other things. Uh, Now, the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And no doubt, most of the people living in the southern kingdom of Judah thought it was only a matter of time before their little kingdom was also run over and destroyed by the powerful and wicked Assyrians. In fact, King Manasseh of Judah did his very best to kind of kiss up to Assyria and to serve them in an effort to keep his nation alive, right? Whatever you want, Assyrians. That was sort of uh, Manasseh's foreign policy. But now that the prophet Nahum comes on the scene and he declares that the Lord is about to unleash his wrath upon this ruthless and powerful enemy of his people. Nahum comes on the scene and declares that the Lord is going to bring Nineveh and ultimately all of Assyria along with it low. And no doubt this this word of judgment against Nineveh, proclaimed by the prophet, it is meant to be a comfort to God's people. In fact, the name Nahum means in Hebrew, comfort. Now, if you read the book of Nahum, if if you don't read it right, you might think there isn't a lot of comfort in this book, which is mostly about God's judgment and about God's wrath. But we have to remember this judgment and wrath, it's being poured out on the very nation who is keeping the people of God awake at night and who has already carried out many injustices in the world. And so this word of judgment against a nation like that, well, yes, for those suffering under their cruel oppression, there's comfort in this. Just as today, we, we look forward to the return of Christ when he will condemn the enemies of God's kingdom to everlasting punishment. So, so Nahum is inviting the 
Israelites to look forward in faith to the day when God would pour out his judgment on their enemy, the Assyrians, and deliver them once for all from their oppressor. Let me give you a brief, brief outline of the book of Nahum. In chapter 1, 2 through 8, Nahum sings a hymn of praise to God for his justice and his mercy and his power and his goodness. Chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 2, verse 2, Nahum declares that Nineveh will be ruined and Judah will be saved. Look at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, here on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed, right? Nineveh will be ruined. Judah will be saved. That's chapter 1, 9 through 2, 2. In chapter 2, verse 3 through 13, the prophet sets forth this vision of what he sees happening to Nineveh. Look at chapter 2, verse 8 and following. Nineveh is like a pool. And its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless. The wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. Nahum is seeing what's, what's going to be happening in Nineveh. Again in verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. And then in chapter 3, the prophet pronounces a woe upon Nineveh. And again, he sets forth what's going to happen to her. And the book ends with these, these words, which kind of sum up the matter. Verses 18 and 19, chapter 3, O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? That's the very end of this book. Basically, at the end, through the prophet, God is is saying to Assyria, through his people, how can I not judge you for your evil? How can I not judge you for your endless cruelty? How can I not pour out my wrath upon you, O Nineveh, for the things that you have done? You know, it's really interesting. There are two books in the prophets that end with with questions. Uh, The other book that ends with a question is the book of Jonah, also dealing with Nineveh. At the end of the book of Jonah, about these same people, God says, how can I not show them mercy? You remember that? How can I not show them mercy, Jonah? And now here in Nahum, God basically says to these same people, how can I not judge you? (laughs) How can I not pour out my wrath upon you? So we have to hold both of those questions and realities in tension. Both both of them certainly teach us something about our God and about about his determination to show mercy as well as his his determination uh, to show judgment and to pour out his wrath. And what are some primary themes of the book of of the book of Nahum. You read this book for yourself. What are some some things that you will come across? Well, first, Nahum has much to say about the character of our God. Again, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. 
In these verses, Nahum highlights both the justice of God and the goodness of God. Right after, after telling us that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, that He maintains wrath against His enemies, that He will not leave the guilty unpunished, that none can endure His fierce anger, the prophet says in verse 7, the Lord is good. Isn't that a remarkable juxtaposition? Right? The frightening characteristics of the Lord set forth in verses 2 through 6, they are not at odds with, they are not in contradiction to the truth that the Lord is good. When I read those verses, I can't help but think of that classic episode in the Chronicles of Narnia with the beaver, right? And he's speaking to the girl about the lion, and the girl goes, you know, a lion, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but is he, is he safe? And the beaver goes, safe, right? He's not safe, no, but he is good, right? That's kind of what's going on here in these first eight verses of Nahum. This is your God, he's not safe, <laughs> He's a consuming fire, but he's good. He's good. And if you think about it right, it's, it's because he's good that he takes out vengeance on his foes. It's because he's good that he, that he will not leave the guilty unplunished. It's because he's good that he pours out his wrath like a fire. People tend to think that it's because, because God is good and loving, he's just going to overlook sin, he's just going to show all mercy and grace no matter what, right? What a foolish thing to think. It's because God is good, and it's because God loves those who trust in him that he, that he won't overlook sin. Think of it in human terms. Think of a judge sitting on a court in the state of Michigan or or on a court, a federal court over our land, right? How would a good judge overlook the guilt of a convicted criminal? Any good judge will not do that. There's no such thing as a good judge who says to a convicted criminal, ah, you know what? Don't worry about it. Go free. Terrorize more people. It's okay. That's not a good judge. That's a bad judge, and any judge like that will soon be removed from the bench. It's because God is good that he takes out his vengeance on evildoers. The problem is we have a low view of evil. We have a low view of sin. We have a low view of how offensive the things we do are to a holy God. I think that's ultimately the problem. We ought to notice that phrase, too, that's repeated on several occasions in this book, and it's the phrase, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. We see that in chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 5. That's what God says to the Assyrians through Nahum. I am against you. What a thought. Try putting that on a bumper sticker. Instead of smile, God loves you, try be afraid, God is against you. Well, sure, don't buy into that today. God isn't against anybody. He loves all of us just the same. Word says otherwise. You who do evil, you who walk in unrepentance, you who live with no fear of God before our eyes, yeah, the Lord is against you. The Lord is against you. What a terrifying thought. Second Nahum has much to say about the sovereignty of God. Okay, in this book, the fall of Assyria is foretold. It's interesting how these events would come to pass in history. Because Assyria would ultimately be overrun and conquered by another nation, 
Babylon. And of course, it's Babylon who would end up conquering Jerusalem and hauling God's people off into exile. But the fact that God raises up wicked Babylon to execute His judgment against wicked Assyria reminds us that He is the all-powerful, sovereign God to whom even the unbelieving nations of the world are but instruments in His hand by which He accomplishes His purposes and carries out His will. It's always fascinating to think about, even today, right? God is at work in the nations of the world, carrying out His will and bringing His purposes to pass. We look at our nation today, and it's sharply divided, and our leaders don't seem to get anything done. I don't follow it that closely because it drives me crazy. And you're like, is anything happening? Well, I can assure you, God is doing something. (laughs) I don't know if the Republicans and Democrats are doing anything, but God is doing something. God is bringing something to pass in all of this. How do we see Christ in the book of Nahum? How do we see Christ in the book of Nahum? First, a general way. We see Christ in the book of Nahum, right? In the book of Nahum, God is set forth as the judge who will come and deliver his people as he executes judgment against their adversaries. We turn then to the New Testament. We read this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. God is just, Paul writes. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. So what Nahum invited Israel to look forward to, the judgment of God against their enemies, is exactly what we look forward to at the return of Christ. On that day when Christ comes in judgment, He will pay back those who trouble His people and those who persecute His people and those who make living the Christian life difficult for His people. And on that day, we will will find relief. And you know, this is one of those truths that uh, I think to really, really appreciate, that whole catechism, question and answer 52, to really, really appreciate all of that, we need to step in the shoes of our brothers and sisters who've experienced persecution, real, real, legitimate persecution for their faith. We've probably experienced it on small levels, right? I don't, I don't argue with that, but we need to think about those who've, who've experienced real, intense persecution for their faith. We need to step in the shoes of those today who are forced to worship in secret, Step in the shoes of those who've lost loved ones in church bombings or, or in things of that nature, okay? This truth is a tremendous comfort that when Christ returns, He will pay back those who trouble us, just as God was going to pay back Assyria for troubling His people in the days of old. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The more specific way we see Christ, I think, is just in a couple verses that certainly point to him directly. In Nahum 1.7, we read, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And so, after reading about the Lord's wrath and how the Lord is going to pour out his anger against his enemies, we see that there is a safe place near the Lord, a safe place in the Lord. He cares for the people who trust in him. We turn then to the New Testament. Actually, 1 Thessalonians 1 again. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, this is what Paul says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, 
and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And the point is on the day of judgment when God pours out his wrath on his enemies, we will find safety in Jesus. Jesus will will keep us from harm on that day. And of course, the reason is because he already endured God's wrath for us. The reason is because on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that our sin and guilt deserved. And so the wonder of the gospel, right, it's not not that God ignores the guilt of those who trust in Christ. No, it's that he's already punished the guilt of those who trust in Christ. That's the wonder of the gospel. He did it on the cross, and it's, it's because he punished our guilt on the cross that on the day of judgment we know that we will receive God's mercy and God's grace and God's salvation in Christ because the penalty's been paid. Right? We await as judge the one who already stood condemned in our place, the catechism says. What a thought that is. Finally, then, a contemporary application from the book of Nahum Hopefully, I've already given you some that makes sense. But I think as people who live in the wealthiest nation of the world, it's, uh, it's worth noticing that, uh, that Nineveh and Assyria and all her conquering had amassed an extravagant amount of wealth. Nahum 2 verse 5 says, that her, says about her silver and gold, the supply is endless. Nineveh's amassed an extraordinary amount of wealth. Yet in the end, all of this wealth could not deliver Assyria. Instead, they wind up being like the rich fool in Luke 12, who, you know, he's got plenty of good things laid up for himself for years to come. And he decides he can take it easy and eat, drink, and be merry, but that very life, that very night, his life is demanded from him. And all the treasure he stored up, well, it's left behind. That's what happens to Assyria as well. Proverbs 18.11 says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified, fortified city. They imagine it. I like that word. They imagine it an unscalable wall. That's how we think about our wealth, isn't it? If we have lots of it, we're safe. If we have lots of it, nothing can get us. It's not true. Wealth can't save us. Silver and gold can't redeem us. Only the precious blood of Christ can, Peter says. And so in closing tonight, in light of what happened to the Assyrians, I might ask you, where are you putting your trust? Where are you putting your hope? What is it that makes you lie down your head at night in peace? Is it your wealth and possessions? Or is it the precious blood of the Lord Jesus? If it's, if it's your wealth and possessions, repent. <laughs> Ask God for forgiveness. Put your trust in Christ who alone will save you from the wrath to come. If your trust is in Christ, then act like it. Live as one and give as one who understands that your wealth and money and all that you've stored up, it can't save you. Only Christ can. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Nahum. We thank you that you are a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. And even then made a way for guilty sinners like you to to live in fellowship with yourself through the blood of your son. 
Father, we praise you for your wisdom at the cross. We praise you for the hope afforded to your people. Uh, Even today, uh, that those who stand against them will not get away with it. We pray that you'd encourage your people here and in other places around the world, Lord, who do suffer for their faith. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand for the Lord's blessing and then we'll sing the closing song together. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. We're going to close with number six, <coughs> 618 in the gray. 618 in the gray. Carl Dottie's favorite song, Jerusalem the Golden. And we will sing verses 1, 2, and, oh no, we'll do 1, 3, and 4. 1, 3, and 4.